Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. For our second episode of our new season, I'm honored to have as my guest London Business School professor Gary Hamill. The Wall Street Journal has named him the world's most influential business thinker, and his landmark books have been translated into more than 25 languages, and these include The Future of Management and What Matters Now. Just a few days ago, Gary published a new book that I'm certain is about to become the talk of the town. It's called Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them, and it's going to be the primary focus of this podcast. I dare say that most people listening into this podcast for any amount of time need no more convincing that our traditional ways of leading people in the workplace long ago exceeded their expiration date. And Gary introduces a new reason why so many people around the world are miserable in their jobs. He believes organizations are disabled by bureaucracy, saying that because of their authoritarian power structures, they are, quote, inertial, incremental, and inhumane. In his book, Gary asserts that we must start over. We need a new leadership paradigm, one that maximizes contribution, not compliance a model that honors and empowers workers and equips them to be both problem solvers and business savvy decision makers. One that treats people as if they were indispensable. So if you feel compelled to yell out hallelujah in this very moment, I give you another idea to cheer for. Gary believes people are actually rather resilient, inventive, and very much open to change. And the fact that our organizations aren't suggests that in many important ways, they are far less human than we all are. Importantly, Gary has several organizations to point to, which have already upended the all too common top-down command and control leadership structures, and which refuse to treat people as fungible commodities. And perhaps coming as no real surprise, they're thriving in a million ways. What would the world be like? What would all of our lives be like? if we worked in organizations that valued people over products, that emphasized trust and transparency, and whose management models were built to maximize creativity, competency, collaboration, commitment, and courage? Well, for the next hour, we're going to find out. Gary Hamill, on behalf of my audience, welcome to you, and thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted. And let's begin this discussion and talk about employee engagement. Your book cites Gallup's well-known stats. Just 34% of American workers are engaged. And globally, we know it's far worse. Only 15% of global workers are truly committed in their jobs, with most workers doing just enough to collect the paycheck. So these numbers have largely not improved. Frankly, they haven't really improved in at least 15 years, as far as I can tell. So the entire century of 2000s. So my question to you, just to get started, is what do you think best explains why engagement is so low? And why is it even worse outside of the United States? And why haven't organizations committed more seriously to improving it? Well, I think, Mark, first, you're right. The data has not changed. It's, it's been stuck there for as long as I've been tracking it. And you really do have to ask why. And certainly, you know, one answer is that most organizations are still running what you might think of management 1.0. Most are still kind of bureaucratic at their core. But that dominant kind of management model in most organizations is actually a mashup of two ideas. It's a mashup of military command structures that go back as far in human history as we can go. And then the principles of industrial engineering, which is about 100 years old. And so our organizations are still run with that kind of a model. Frederick Taylor, who was writing back in the early 20th century, famous book, Principles of Scientific Management, that was published in 1911. And in that book, he said that the average, and of course, at that, at that time, in the early 20th century, most workers were poorly educated and quite a few were actually illiterate. And so Taylor said that at the time, the average employee, this is basically his exact words, was, quotes, so stupid that the term percentage had no meaning to it. So we are still running that kind of organization where it's, it's a caste system that, that empowers the few at the expense of the many. That's kind of, you know, you have the thinkers and the doers, managers, and employees, the clever and the compliant. And we've really never escaped that legacy, even though the world has moved on enormously, 
you know, since the 19th century. And at the time, uh, as I said, employees were not well educated, so they literally needed a manager to tell them what to do. Information was expensive to gather and move, and the simplest way of doing that was to build a hierarchy. So you'd have 10 people report up to a manager. They would consolidate all those inputs, then report up again. And in that old model, literally the people at the top were the only people that had kind of a, a panoptic view of the whole organization. So it made sense for them to have more authority because they are the only ones who could see the, quote, big picture. So we've never really escaped that legacy. You know, we can kind of talk about why, but, but that engagement data will never change as long as we have that industrial age model in which we see human beings as uh, principally uh, resources or semi-programmable robots. Well, I'm asking this question at the start here for a specific reason, which is to lay the groundwork for your book, because you're saying we got to blow things up and this is an audience that totally agrees. You can't keep going with what we've been doing. You have mathematics that's much longer than what I would say, but at least for the last century, we've been managing the people this way. And I guess I want to just probe into this just a little bit. Aren't we a lot more enlightened about the ineffectiveness of managing people this way? And haven't we at least come to an understanding that the people that we're managing aren't stupid, they aren't uneducated, and if we manage them with a little inspiration and support that they're actually going to perform better, aren't we there? So what's the resistance to applying at least some of that intelligence? Yeah, so I guess there's two things there, Mark. Let's, let's look at the data first, and then let's talk about the resistance. So if, if you look at the data, here's what we know, that only one in five employees believes that their opinions really matter at work that only one in nine believes they can influence decisions that are important in their work, that only one in 10 believes they have the freedom to experiment with new product solutions and so on. And the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says that 70%, 70% of all jobs in the U.S. economy require little or no originality. And that doesn't say anything about the people in those jobs and their capabilities, but it says a lot about this tendency to regard particularly frontline employees as simply kind of, you know, a means of production. And so you'd think that it would change. You know, we have all this enlightened talk, but actually in reality, it hasn't changed. In fact, some data I saw in the UK, I think a pretty typical global workforce, developed country workforce, uh, in UK, the discretion, the freedom of teams has gone down over the last 20 years, not up. And so if the impulse of managers, and, and we'll come back and talk about why this is true, but if the impulse of managers is to control, if, if kind of they feel that it's their job to make sure everybody's coloring inside the lines, then all the new technologies we have actually that could be used to empower people can also be used for a kind of new digital tailorism where you can measure every keystroke, you can measure productivity to the, and so there's an incentive to use all this new technology to have more control, not less. And it's one of the things that really got me thinking, Mark, about why and how we got stuck. Because, you know, I have enough gray hair to go back quite a while in management. And even before my career, you go back to Douglas McGregor 50, 60 years ago, and you see all of the things we've tried in our organization, starting with T groups and self-managing teams, high-performance work systems, socio-technical systems, all the way up to mindfulness training and agile. And you go like, We've tried all these things over all these decades, and we have not built organizations that are fundamentally more capable than the ones we have. And so what you have to conclude is there is something deeper about our organizations that we are not touching, that somehow we're changing these things, but we're not getting at the essence of it. And what I would argue, part of that essence, uh, one of that is basically the, the fundamental architecture of our organizations. And that still revolves around the formal hierarchy where big leaders appoint little leaders, where people compete for the scarce resource of promotion, where power correlates with rank, that is still very much the way most organizations are built. And I think, again, I think it's impossible to create a more human or more capable organization unless you radically flatten that pyramid. But as you may have noticed, people who have power are often reluctant to give it up, can often give you good reasons why they need more of it, which is why both in public sector, private sector, what we've seen is actually the ratchet of centralization moving towards more central control rather than towards more autonomy. You know, bureaucracy doesn't advance absent human intention. And in some sense, you know, bureaucracy is this massive multiplayer game that rewards people for a set of bureaucratic behaviors and it rewards them through promotion. 
And so you learn that if you want to win, you learn how to manage up, how to negotiate targets, how to deflect blame, how to elbow aside rivals, how to defend your turf, and you learn how to play that game. And, you know, having learned how to play it and gotten ahead, it's kind of difficult when somebody comes and says, you know, game over. We're going to change the game. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like saying to LeBron James, you know, we know basketball was very good for you, but like, let's try volleyball. They go like, nah, I don't think so. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to unpack this while we're together here. One of the things that I believe is that organizations, I used to think there would be a nobility. I used to think that there would be an understanding at the CEO level. There's enough science, there's enough data, there's enough research coming at them. They hear speakers, they read books, all of this that basically lays it out that the way we've been managing people is doing more harm than good. And it's time for us to transition. And we haven't seen that for the most part. Obviously, there's some outliers that are doing some great stuff. But for the most part, as you said a minute ago, they're not. So it comes down to when they start to realize that the way they're managing is undermining their productivity, their success, their profitability, that's when I think they're going to say, okay, we need to take a more serious look at this. So you said in your book that there's a, I think you called it a worrying slowdown in global productivity growth. So, but you didn't share any stats on this. So I, I thought I would ask, is it getting so bad that companies are going to start to pay attention to this? Well, that's exactly the question I've asked myself. In fact, the question I often get asked as well, uh, particularly by my academic colleagues and people who are somewhat skeptical about this whole argument, saying, gee, Gary, if bureaucracy was so costly, if, as you assert, it is a tax on human effort, like why haven't companies you know, gotten rid of it? They've gotten rid of all kinds of other things that are costly. But the frank thing is, Managers seem to be fans of all things lean except lean management. Go figure that out. <laughs> but it is still a very important question. So here's one of my answers. Let, and let me respond to a couple of points you made, Mark. First, I do think you're right. I think there's a growing sense, certainly among the CEOs that I talk to, there's a growing sense that what really hobbles their organizations is not the operating systems, not back office supply chain logistics and all that. It's not even the business model, although, you know, many people today, they understand we got to change the business model. We got to update that. But I think increasingly leaders understand it is the management model. We have too many layers. We're too conservative. We're too slow. And somehow this has to change. But there's several things that have stood in the way. First of all, of course, as a leader, you know, we may see leaders and CEOs of having a lot of influence and power, but mostly they don't. They struggle to change their own organization. If you think about, you know, having dozens or perhaps, you know, more and maybe several layers underneath you of VPs and SVPs and so on. How do you go one at a time to all those individuals and convince them to rethink their own self-interest, convince them that they need to move from being a manager to a mentor? You know, the average CEO does not have enough hours in the day, enough energy to go like one at a time and convince people to kind of sign on to this kind of enormous change. We'll, we'll come back because there is a way of doing this. But I think most CEOs don't, they, they just can't imagine how to make that happen. So that's been a barrier. I think a second barrier is they haven't had very good models, right? The companies that are managed very differently, they might have come across a case study here or there, but they've been easy to dismiss as kind of outliers or just aberrations that you really don't have to take seriously, which is why we tried to aggregate all these experiences and, and lay out an alternate model in the book. But I think the other thing is this, for many leaders, they've found a way of offsetting the bureaucratic tax that is easier for them than actually tackling bureaucracy. And those easier routes have been several things. Number one has been mergers and acquisitions. So my experience says that when companies are confronted, when they're being buffeted by the winds of creative destruction, the first impulse isn't to cut the anchor bureaucracy. The first impulse is to lash up to another wallowing super tanker. So over the last few years, you see $20 trillion of mergers and acquisitions, largely of big companies getting together with other big companies. And they'll tell you that the logic for this is primarily economies of scale and so on. It's really not. A primary logic is twofold. One is more market power. And we know from some very good academic research that companies today have more market power than ever before, more pricing power. So if you look at the average margin, the, the difference between prices and, and marginal costs for companies, that margin has gone up three times over the last 20 years in U.S. industry. Companies have a lot more power, pricing power with customers than ever before. So that's one thing those mergers give you. They also give you more regulatory influence. And so it's interesting that the most highly regulated industries in the U.S. 
are the most profitable, financial services, telecommunications, pharmaceuticals. And so what leaders are learning is or have learned that, you know, rather than bloody my nose on the competitive playing field, let me go to the regulators, renegotiate the rules, you know, the regulatory rules in a way that advantages me. There's an interesting piece of academic research that says just that has transferred $400 billion a year from consumers to companies because companies are able to shape that environment to their liking. And then the last thing is all the financial engineering that's going on. Over the last three years in the U.S., large companies have bought back $2.4 trillion of their own shares. And so, you know, when you run out of ideas to grow, when you're hamstrung by bureaucracy, if nothing else, you buy your own shares, you know, you reduce the denominator in the EPS ratio. And then since you're reported on share performance as the CEO, you go to the bank. I think the fact is that they've just had at least what appears to them to be easier ways of, you know, looking better than actually doing the hard work of uninstalling bureaucracy. Well, in addition to all those gloomy stats that you just shared, I'm also kind of seeing evidence now that companies are using COVID as an opportunity to take people who've been furloughed and lay them off permanently in order to lower their cost structure. So I'm wondering if you think that corporate leaders are looking to automation, right? In other words, see, all of your points are, we're doing everything we could possibly do not to look at how we manage human beings in the workplace. We're going to find other ways of making ourselves more successful, more profitable, et cetera, without having to deal with the bureaucracy. And so my question is, and I'm hoping you're going to say no, but give it to us, you know, what percentage of workplace leaders do you suspect have considered that declining productivity calls for them to adopting new practices as opposed to let's just bring in robots, AI? Well, certainly I think there's an impulse always to reduce costs. When I wrote my first book in 1994, Competing for the Future, we coined this term called denominator management. So it's always easier to reduce in any ratio, you know, reduce headcount, reduce investment, but to cut the denominator. We call it corporate anorexia. And certainly to some extent, COVID may be an excuse for another round, although to be fair to all these businesses, it is having an enormously negative effect on demand. So obviously companies are going to have to take some measures here. It's interesting that Southwest Airlines, who we profile in our book and has Mm -hmm. consistently been the most profitable airline in the United States, has made a commitment that they're not going to do any involuntary permanent dismissals as a result of COVID, at least not so far, which is an incredibly gutsy thing to do. Mm -hmm. But it's true to their heritage. You know, their founder, Herb Keller, said from the beginning, he said, We want to reduce every possible cost except the cost of our people. But let's talk about automation for a moment. My thinking on that is the following. There are some things for sure machines can already do better than people. They are better at pattern recognition. They're better at sorting. They're better at analytics. They're better at modeling, whole host of things. The fact is, though, there are certain things, and I think McKinsey and company, others that really look at this carefully would agree. There are certain skills human beings have that machines are not going to have any time soon. Social intelligence, lateral problem solving, basic forms of creativity. And so the problem is that in so many jobs, human beings are not allowed to bring those things to work. We've engineered that judgment out of their jobs. So we have turned them into robots. And so my argument is we should be afraid of the job displacing effects of automation exactly to the degree that we continue to treat human beings that work as robots. But what I've also learned is whoever you are in whatever role, if you give people the chance to learn, grow, and problem solve, they will do so. And they will take your business forward in a way you know, that robots are never going to imagine. Robots are very good at pattern making. They're not very good at pattern breaking. And so I'm much more sanguine about the impact of automation, but only if we start to actually unleash the capability that people have there. I'll give you one example, Mark. Nucor is by far the most profitable and most innovative steel company in the United States, and if not the world. And about $21 billion in sale. They have 75 completely autonomous divisions, each with its own P&L, no overhead corporate allocations. They run a headquarters in North Carolina that has 100 people, about a tenth the size of the head office of their nearest competitor. They have 3x the revenue per employee of their competitor. Just like unbelievable organization. And what you find there is they have empowered so-called blue-collar teams, frontline employees, in a way that none of their competitors have. 
So frontline teams are responsible not only for improving operations, but for interfacing with customers, for inventing new sources of steel. They're running thousands of experiments every year to make the business better. They have an immediate financial impact, a positive impact whenever they raise a capital efficiency. So you've taken what many people regard as kind of blue collar jobs, and you've turned these people into people who think like owners and think like business people. So this is, I think, possible in any industry, in any job. And we make an enormous mistake, economists particularly, and, but we, we make a huge mistake when we talk about low-skilled jobs. Because I don't think there's any such thing. I think there's a lot of low-opportunity jobs where people can't develop their skills. But as we talk about in the book, whether you're loading steel onto freight trains, whether you're processing agricultural produce, whatever, whether you're working as a teller in a bank, there are no jobs that are inherently low skill, but there are a lot of jobs where people haven't had the chance to develop their skills. And sadly, then you turn around, you know, where you don't have any autonomy, we haven't taught people to think like business thinkers, we don't give them the financial upside, then therefore not much creativity is forthcoming. And then we turn around and say, like, well, we told you so. Those people are kind of lunkheads. You can't expect them to contribute much. Well, that's, that's a self-fulfilling uh, kind of uh, prophecy there. So I'm not as worried about robots as some are, but our only protection is if we start to really turn human beings into, you know, everyone at work into some kind of an entrepreneur. Otherwise, yeah, I would worry about this. So you mentioned Nucor and you also mentioned Herb Kelher and Southwest Airlines. So let me go to those for a second here. So Nucor, the CEO of this company's name is Ken Iverson, and he's created this culture where ordinary human beings can do extraordinary things, which just so happens to be the motto of this show. And while most of today's companies were conceived as command and control organizations, as you pointed out earlier, Nucor under Iverson, he created the company under the assumption that most of the genius is within the people doing the work. And so that's a fundamentally different idea. So what inspired him to build the company this way? Like, where did he get his insight? You know, I actually don't know. I know for some of the Vanguard companies, he profiled the book kind of where that fundamental insight came from. I don't know where it came from with, with Ken, but I do remember he wrote one thing that I thought went to the essence of it, and he described bureaucracy a little bit like slavery. And I admit that's quite a stretch, and I ho hopefully that doesn't offend somebody because most of us at work, we are not actually in chains. But his point was this, that it is a kind of us versus them. It is a kind of, if not physical slavery, it's often a kind of an intellectual tyranny that people have at work, that they're not asked for their opinions. The data bears that out. And he said, we need to change that. And so I'll give you another example. You know, we also profile Hire, the Chinese appliance maker in the book. They own a GE Appliance, unbelievable company, about 60,000 employees in China divided into 4,000 micro businesses. But the first time I met their CEO, Mark, and this was at least a decade ago, Zhang Rumin, sitting in my office in California, he said this, and I'll give you almost a direct quote. He said, we're going to encourage our people to become entrepreneurs because people are not a means to an end. They're an end of themselves. And he said, we want to give everybody the chance to become their own CEO. So if you look at all of these companies, whether it's Hire, whether it's Svenska Handelsbank, whether it's Nucor, whether it's Southwest, all of the others we profile, where they start from is a very simple conception of where the human being fits in the world of work. So in the bureaucratic model, the institution comes first. The company comes first. It hires people to make products and services. And in that conception, the human being is the instrument. You just use them to get something done. And, and I can tell you, people who feel like instruments are not going to bring their best to work. And the model of humanocracy flips that around where people join an institution as a way of making their impact in the world, as a way of multiplying their impact, and yes, getting paid. In that rendering, it's the institution is the instrument, not the human being. So nothing is possible until that fundamental assumption shifts, right? Who's the instrument, right? And who's the initiator here? How do we shift that? How do we shift that? So let's go back to Iverson for a second, and then we'll go to Southwest just to pin this down. I mean, Nucor never laid off an employee in their history when their industry shed, your book said, 40% of their employees from 2000 to 2018. 40%, they did nothing. But it's the philosophy that you just hinted at that I think is so astonishing. Their model is to build creativity, competence, collaboration, commitment, and courage 
And their motto, I guess, is whatever your organization makes or sells, its real business is growing human beings. So as you say, it's the human before the business versus the business before the human. And then Southwest Airlines, some stats that you shared that I've actually never seen before. Between 1990 and 2018, they generated half of American Airlines, all of American Airlines, not the business American Airlines, U.S. Airlines net income, while accounting for only 6% of industry revenues. And they have a workplace culture, everybody knows, that inspires the same thing. Dedication, devotion, loyalty. They treat people as family. They lead them with love and they express it that way. They have hearts on their planes. So I have to ask this question and not as the ignorant student sitting in the back of the room asking the same question again, but when competitors see a 30-year run of success like this, how come they, they don't choose to emulate them? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Man, I've asked myself that question, Mark. I think one is, and by the way, I do think there's a solution here, and we'll, we'll talk about that. I, I do not think we were helpless to change the situation. In fact, I'm, I'm actually very, very optimistic, despite all the data we've shared so far. But I think one of the challenges, is when you look at companies that have built these kinds of cultures, particularly that have been there a long time, like Southwest, I can give you several other examples. Svenska Handelsbank, the most decentralized bank in the world, based in Stockholm, they operate across north of Europe. They have beaten their European peer group on return on equity for 49 years in a row, right? I mean, how do you not look at that and say, okay, cheapers? Well, exactly. Maybe when it gets to 50, we'll take you know, a look. We want, to, we want to see a trend, right? <laughs> so a couple of challenges. One of them is these are companies that were born that way, right? They started with this different DNA. And so what you see 10 or 20 or 50 years later is, how they worked out over many decades a set of initial principles, of propositions about how they want to run their organization. By the way, I should say that Nucor has not been managed that way forever, neither Svenska Hansbank, and they both went through pretty wrenching changes quite a few decades ago. They've operated that way so long, it's very hard as an outsider to deconstruct that, right? To go back and say, well, what do they change first? Where do you dig in? Like, how do you even begin? You know, if, if you're kind of out of shape and a little overweight and you see some buffed up, you know, whatever, guy or gal, like, you go like, gee, I don't even know where to begin. Like, how, you know, it just looks daunting. So I think that's one reason. It's like, I don't know how to start. And as I said, I think the other reason is it is such a challenge to the ideas of, of what I would call bureaucratic privilege, of the prerogatives and so on, of positional authority. Like, I'm not sure I really want to do that. You know, when I was, when I was talking to a senior leader at Nucor, they said this, they said, at Nucor, being a manager is the least noble thing you can do. Because we're just here to serve the people who are creating the real value. And where in most organizations, we look at it the other way around. It's all about, you know, Herb Kelleher was famous for, for beating people over the head with the idea that no job was more important than another job. Now, obviously, there's a market for jobs, for skills, and some skills are more rare, and they pay more because of that. But you know, he never believed that any human being was inherently had more dignity or was more value to the organization than any other employee. And so I think those are the two things that have made it very, very hard for organizations. They look at this, but to know where to begin. And and that habit to control is so deeply embedded. You know, you'll, you'll remember, it's a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, you'll remember that United Airlines had this huge uh, PR crisis when... Uh, Dragged the guy off the plane. Plane and they drug somebody off and blooded him up and so on. It went viral. What was very interesting, Mark, was in the aftermath of that, the company did its own report. And then uh, their CEO, who's still with the airline, I think he's now maybe called... Chairman. Exec chairman, I guess. Yeah, yeah Oscar Munoz. Munoz. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked him this question on a reporter. So, like, what did you learn out of this experience? And I, and I don't have his, his quote in front of me, but I can give it to you pretty close. But he, he basically said this. He said, we've learned that we had not given our staff the rules, the procedures, and the guidelines that would allow them to use their common sense. And I just thought about that, and I said, okay, this is how deep this problem runs. That, that the irony of what he just said, we have not given them the policies, the guidelines, the rules to use it. No, those are all things are substitutes for common sense. And I think many leaders, the idea that the success of your organization has to be entrusted to the ability of people every day to use their own judgment is so scary 
that your mind can't even go there. He can't even use that language. He's using all the bureaucratic language. And what he's trying to say is, wow, they probably should have had the freedom to offer $2,000 to get somebody off the damn airplane instead of 800 or whatever we needed to avoid this debacle, but they didn't. Pretty stunning what you're just describing. Yeah. I mean, just the mindset of that. And then when you were describing it, you know, I fly Southwest a lot and they give their flight attendants permission to, you know, basically creatively present the rules of flying, you know, about when the mask goes on and how to put your seatbelt on. And they've turned it into entertainment. So you talk about, you know, giving people the freedom to be themselves and to express themselves in creative ways while still accomplishing the goals. And then you have the Munoz saying, well, we didn't give them enough rules. We didn't give them <laughs> enough of a protocol to follow. Boy, that's really a stunning example. But you know, the, thinking, the thinking goes very, very deep, Mark. And I think, and we'll come back to this because then that starts to point you to kind of what the solutions may be. But you have to first face up how deep this thinking goes. I came across a piece in a very illustrious business magazine. This is just a couple of years ago. It was a, an article on the future of, of HR, I think. And here you had the managing director of one of the most prestigious consulting companies in the world saying this. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but I will tell you I'm 90% accurate here. What they said was this. There's several authors on this article. They said the G3, and by G3, they meant like the big guns in the company. The G3, the CEO, the CFO, and the CHRO, they said, need to look at the future, look at the big picture, while everyone else has their heads buried in operations. Think about what they're saying. They're saying the only people only three people have a mind of the organization are at the top. That's that's back to that caste system. I remember hearing I don't need to embarrass people here, but this is a very well respected CEO of one of the largest companies in America, consumer brand company that everybody knows this company, their products. And he said there are certain opportunities that only the CEO can make and certain big calls that only they can make. Mark, that is rubbish. That is rubbish. Yeah. All the evidence says that when it comes to, to, to intercepting the future, the CEOs are usually the last to know, right? They're protected by these layer of underlings who are trying to protect their bosses from discomforting knowledge, right? You have these long sense and respond delays where people at the front line see things are, are changing. It takes them months or sometimes years for their voices to get heard. By the time an issue is big enough, to capture the scarce attention of the CEO, the company is already on the back foot. That's why virtually every change program is a catch-up program. And often the people who have most of their emotional equity invested in the past are the people at the top. Not always, but often. And then if everybody in the organization believes this, if you believe that real change, real shifts in direction can only happen when it's endorsed at the top, you'll lose. You'll lose. And that's why I'm, I'm kind of optimistic on where this is going, because I think a lot of leaders are coming to this recognition. They are learning that you cannot win with a hierarchical organization in a networked world. It is literally impossible. Is that an abuse of power, Gary? In other words, the CEO that you just described, I'm curious as to, is it just like power has gone to this person's head? How do you come up with a belief system like that? How could you diminish your entire organization and the brain you know, all the minds and all the creativity, all the expertise that employees bring to their jobs every day and diminish them to suggest that only I and maybe a couple of other people can really come up with the direction for this company and the good ideas. I mean, what engenders that belief system? When you've lived for close to 30 years in Silicon Valley and you see all these crazy new game changing ideas that have come from like people like who are these people? What were their credentials? Just the absurdity of this, but there is a kind of bureaucratic confederacy, if you like, that works to preserve the status quo. Mm -hmm. How many times have you heard a consultant say, for change to succeed, it requires uh, the CEO to be on board? Like, really? Like, well, if that's the case, we already have a problem. Change has to be happening. It was very interesting that Amazon, Jeff Bezos has said, my goal is to create the world's biggest laboratory. Jeff Bezos, who has as right as much right to anybody to say, like, I'm the smartest guy on the planet, mm -hmm. is not going to say that. He's going to say, I build a company where we are trying new stuff all the time, stuff that I don't even know about. People are, are charged up to experiment. And, you know, if you look at many of the new things they've done, like Amazon Web Services, which is probably worth now more than half of the value of the company, 
you know, that doesn't start out from some major strategic review at the top from some brilliant decision. It starts out from people a few levels down saying, hey, we have excess computing capacity. We know something about managing web infrastructure. Maybe we can sell this. And I have to say, when the ratio of executive compensation to frontline compensation is a few hundred to one, like it's hard to stand up and say, you know what, guys, I really don't know where the future is. I'm going to need all of your help. Yeah. No, we're, we're all going to have to work together to find the future. I don't know where the next billion-dollar opportunity is going to come from in this company. You've watched over the last few years, more than a few years, you watched Intel struggle. And their former CEO, which I quote in the book, Paul Odellini, you know, Intel had the chance to make chips for the iPhone. And they passed on it. And, you know, writing about a decade later, Odellini said, well, and Lily said, nobody could have seen the success of the iPhone. And my is like, really? Nobody? If you'd asked your entire organization, okay, here we have the most ubiquitous device on the planet called the mobile phone. We have Apple, which has a genius for creating wonderful user interfaces. If Apple puts its genius to the mobile phone, do you think this might be a success? So really, nobody in the world thought this thing would succeed? Like, I'm, it's inconceivable to me. Paulo Lini didn't think it would succeed, perhaps. And, and I think... The best CEOs, the best leaders are going to realize that no longer can they be decision maker in chief, arbiter in chief, strategist in chief. But what they can do is they can start to be system architects. They can start to think about, okay, if it's not that formal pyramid with all those cascading decision rights, how do I build an organization that gets the best out of everybody? How do I, you know, how do I build the collaborative structures? How do I build the incentives? How do I get people on the front line, the information, the skills, the upside? To help them think like business entrepreneurs. And, and when you look at people like Ken Iverson and you look at people like Zhang Ramin at Hire, that is where they put their energy. You know, Zhang Ramin is, is going to tell you, I don't know where the next opportunity is going to come from. Hire in the last few years has created $2 billion of enterprise value from bottom-up entrepreneurship that nobody could have predicted where those ideas were going to go. And so I think it is it is changing this role of the leader as the all-wise general to Somebody who's really saying, no, no, how do I how do I make sure I'm building an organization here that gets the best of everyone every day? And for that to happen, maybe it starts with a fair dose of humility. Does it also start with a different model for whom we select into management roles? So before anybody can be promoted all the way up into CEO and to think that only they should have their ideas used in the company, have you given thought to... Like if you were to advise major companies on who they should be selecting for management roles and management roles, I mean, managing people. Mm -hmm. So they're not technical managers. They're literally managing other human beings. Is there a shift in who we should be looking for more specifically the talents, the motivations, the skills, the inclinations? Yeah, that's that's a big question mark and an extraordinarily important one. A couple of quick thoughts. One is, I think one big question today is how many quotes managers do you need anyway? So one of, one of the organizations we talk about in the book, and I won't go deep here, but I'll just give you the super little thumbnail, is a company called Birdsorg. It's the largest provider of home health services, home nursing services in the Netherlands. They have 16,000 employees. They're more productive on every measure, patient satisfaction, employee turnover, nursing utilization, more effective than any other competitor probably in Europe and maybe in the world. They run a 16,000-person organization with two managers. That's a 1 to 8,000 span of control. It's a lot of reviews to write. And it's simple how they've done it. It's not rocket science. They do it because the principles are not that hard. When today, when you can connect people laterally on social platforms, when nurses can go and talk to 16,000 other nurses and find out what are you doing, what's working, when all of the best practices are shared like almost in real time, every training program is available to everybody and curated by all those employees themselves. When you distribute the managerial roles into frontline teams, so those at Birdsart, these 16,000 caregivers are organized into teams of 12 people. And in every team of 12 people, there's a performance monitor who's kind of a controller. There's a mentor. They have all the usual managerial roles, but they're divided up among these teams. And then when every team is accountable for their own P&L and you can see your performance as a team versus every other team across the whole enterprise so you know exactly how you're doing, why do you need a manager to tell you any of that? You don't need any of that. And so I think, you know, the first big question is how many managers do we need at all? When Hire made their jump from kind of bureaucracy to humanocracy, they have their own word for it, Rendon High, 
when they made that jump, they got rid of 12,000 managers and those jobs will never come back. Now, most of those people didn't leave the company. Most of them got, they went and are now working in these small entrepreneurial units. They're micro enterprises. What are all these people doing in a world where everybody has information, where coordination happens through collaboration on social platforms? You literally do not need those roles. So that's the first thing. You got to say like, gee, you know, we don't probably need any managers or very many, but we certainly need a lot of leaders. Now, my definition, Mark, of a leader is somebody who makes a catalytic difference to collective accomplishment under challenging circumstances. But when you look at leadership, it has no correlation whatsoever with hierarchy. One of the real challenges we fell into, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, by the late 1970s or early 1980s, there was no longer any mystery about what it took to be a good manager. We'd worked for 70 years on that. If you go back in the early 20th century, late 19th century, as we were bringing lots of people to work, and a lot, again, a lot of not very well educated, we needed this new class of employee to wrangle all these people. So we invent this idea of a manager. And Harvard Business School and Wharton, all the other business schools get established, you know, around the turn of the century there. And their goal is to churn out this new professional called a person called a manager. And so at that time, administrative competence was rare to read a budget, to do project proposals, capital investments, to organize work, to measure variances. All these this work of managing was quite rare. So at that time, administrative skill was rare and made a disproportionate value to collective success. The companies like Ford, like GM, like DuPont, who had better managers like GE that built the first executive education program, the companies that had better managers won. But 100 years later, administrative skill doesn't differentiate anybody's performance, particularly when most companies are running basically the identical management model. There's just like no distinctive value in any of that. And yet, when we talk about, quotes, leadership, we still use that term mostly to refer to people who are primarily administrators and who sit in this administrative ranks uh, where your seniority depends on size of budget and size of headcount. But those people are not doing the most important work in the company. And what happened in the early 80s, at least as far as I can tell is, as the idea of a manager became kind of passe, it was hard for a consulting company, a training company, a, a business school to differentiate its, its product by we're going to make you a better manager, we shifted the language. And we said, if you come spend you know, your exec ed dollars with us or whatever, we will turn managers into leaders. Now, there's very little evidence we've ever learned how to do that. And that's <laughs> not me, but that's the way. words out of my you know, mouth. Of yeah. But we did that. And so literally, it was kind of old wine and new wineskins. And so the dilemma, I think, still today in most organizations is that, and we know this from our data, we know this from our research, Mark, is that if you believe the way you get ahead in your organization is by getting promotions, then that's where the energy goes. You are fighting those promotion tournaments with your rivals. If, on the other hand, you believe the way you get ahead is adding more value, that totally changes the competition. And I can I can tell you organizations where that's true, where you have every, every employee is evaluated by every other employee. I mean, not exactly because you can't literally do that, but conceptually it's all peer-based ratings and where the only question you're asking is who created the most value and that compensation discussion is completely and utterly independent of where you sit in any formal hierarchy. And so you find in those situations, people are competing to add value, not competing to suck up or to negotiate an easier target or whatever else. Have you seen companies make that change? In other words, have you seen a traditional top-down command and control environment make the shift that you just described? Because it's pretty radical. Yep, that's what Hire did over the last decade. That's exactly what they did. As I said, their, their U.S. subsidiary is G Appliances, formerly owned by General Electric, and they've been making that same shift in what you, know, you would have thought was one of the best managed companies. GE historically had that reputation. I'm afraid Tardish now. But they've, they've been going through that same transformation. You know, that's the way it works at WL Gore. So it's not that these things are so rare, but they are quite uncomfortable. And, you know, if you think of how much companies struggle to reinvent their business models when you're kind of in love with that old business model, I can tell you as, as much as, as CEOs love their legacy business models, they love their legacy power models even more. And so having said that, though, and I, we really should shift to the good news in all of this because uh, we're I, do believe, <laughs> okay, I do believe that most CEOs are eager now to do this differently and they're ready to do that. And what we try to talk about in the book is, all right, 
how do you get from here to there without blowing things up and recognizing that you still may have a lot of kind of naysayers and foot draggers. Okay. So I want to get to the optimistic part. We've been delaying this for good reason. This is a fascinating insight. So my first question to you is, we have CEOs listening to this, obviously, but we have more managers, I'm presuming, because it's just more of them are leaders, if you will. So what can they do, Gary? Like, what's some key advice that you can give them right now? Like, this is how you need to be thinking. These are the behaviors you need to be adapting. This is the structure you should be thinking about. Whatever advice you have, give it to the managers. Give it to the people who are leaders. I'm sorry I used that term based on what we just discussed. Well, three things. I would say, but I should probably put one preface. It is very disconcerting and whatever when as a manager you're asked to really change the way you acquire and exercise influence. When you move from a kind of bureaucratic game where power is vested in your position and when instead you have to earn your authority every day from the peers around you. You know, there are a lot of managers, but I would say to be a leader, there are a couple of things. If, to know whether you're a leader or not, there's a couple of things you can ask. One is, if my team vote me off the island, would they? If there was no formal relationship, would people still be lining up to follow me? So that's a very critical question to ask. The other question to ask is, if I had none of the instruments of bureaucratic authority, if I didn't have the title, the budget, and the ability to punish people, could I still get something amazing done in my organization? Or would I struggle to know what to do? Because I think real leaders know how to get things done, whatever. In fact, you would know, Mark, that in today's world, we have an incredibly authority-phobic generation coming to work right now. If you have to use your formal position of power to get things done, you're actually eroding your real leadership capital with the people. Because this generation coming to work is the first generation in history that didn't grow up in hierarchical organizations. They grew up on the web, where if you have influence, it's because you have followers, not because somebody gave you formal power. So I think you first have to have that kind of conversation with yourself and, and be kind of honest. But three things I three things I say. First is you do need to start to make a habit of giving your authority away. Because paradoxically, it's one of those things like love. What was a Beatles song, right? The more you give, the more you get. And so what you find is that when you give your authority away, when you spend time thinking about how you empower others, that paradoxically gives you more influence. Not more authority, but it gives you more influence. It makes you more valuable. So that, what does that mean in practice? It means taking time to teach the people around you what you know. If you have some particular skills or help them learn how to do what you do. It means giving them specific opportunities to grow. Ask them, where would you like to build your skills? And hooking them up with internal, external training that helps them do that. It means stepping back many times and letting them struggle a bit with something that you might be able to step in and do, whether that's defining the team's mission, defining the metrics by which they're going to measure themselves, maybe sending somebody in your stead to your peer staff meetings and letting them represent you. But it starts with that kind of impulse. You know, the, the most famous management guru in American history, Mary Parker Follett, writing back in the early part of the 20th century, she said, a leader is someone who seeks power with, not power over. So that is, I think, where you start. And there's a number of things we outline. I think we outline 21 ways in the book you can start to give your authority away. That's one. Number two is to kind of be honest about when you yourself are operating out of that old bureaucratic model. Because, you know, the sad thing is bureaucracy makes assholes of us all. And we find ourselves behaving at work in ways we probably wouldn't in our private lives with friends and family. So it means kind of doing that AA fourth step of a fearless moral inventory, stepping back and saying, okay, when did I suck up? When did I pad a budget? When did I kind of talk down a rival for a thing? When did I hoard power because I needed to be seen to be making a decision? And so we provide an inventory in the book of those kinds of bureaucratic behaviors. And so you know, once a week, once a month, step back and ask, okay, when did I fall into those traps? And more specifically, what in my organization system tempted me to do it? What are the rewards for doing that here and how do I change that? You can then go to your team if you have people who work for you and say, hey, guys, I don't want to be this way. But here's these bureaucratic habits. When you see me falling into some of these, like come say something, like don't be shy. And you're going to have to ask people a few times before they'll take you seriously. But I think that's number two. I think the third and last thing, Mark, and you know, I don't want to say the most important, but where you really now have the power to change, not you, but the entire system, is when you start to believe that you can hack that old management model, that you do not have to wait for the CEO or anybody that has the word chief in their title. 
and you can start with you know wherever you are. One of the really sad things about bureaucracy is that it produces this learned helplessness. And mm-hmm. and you know I go to all these management conferences through the years, hundreds I suppose. And it's always been interesting, Mark. I hear a lot of CEOs talk and people listen to them and go like, wow, what an amazing story. How cool that is, but I'm not the CEO. Like, what do I do? And then you hear a lot of people who talk to them about how they do better in their job. How do you be a better leader of your team? How do you be a better social marketer? Whatever the the thing is. What you never find anybody doing, and this is the whole point of our book, Mark, what you never find anybody telling you is, how do you change the damn system when nobody asked you to do it? Yep. And I'll give you one or two quick examples. We were doing some work for Adidas in North America. They had long kind of lagged behind Nike. They are now like just, they've just been killing it the last few years. But we worked with them about four years ago. And one of the things we did was to train a bunch of folks there how to start to hack the old system. And one of the hacks that came, just the simplest thing, somebody in their e-commerce team said, you know, it's so hard to get a new idea funded. You have to go up through the chain of command, the formal budgeting process. What if we had an internal crowdfunding platform? So that's a good idea, but like, that's a hard thing. Like, who do you go to? The CFO or head of innovation? How do you build a crowdfunding platform in a company? It's like, it's like a big problem. So they said, okay, let's run an experiment in our own little team with 60 people. So they talked their leader, their manager into setting aside a few thousand dollars. I think they gave every team member $150 to invest in peer ideas. They just put up a big whiteboard, our big white space on a wall, and they said, if you guys have an idea that's not part of the budget, you think it's a good idea, here's a simple little form, write it out, put it on the wall. And they said to everybody else, take a sticky note, you can leave a comment to how to improve the idea, or you can make a little investment committee. I'm willing to put $50 of my 150 bucks into doing this. So they ran this as an experiment, I think for 30 days. And of course you find some brilliant ideas, the team naturally puts most of their money on the ones they think are going to be best, and it has a payoff. And now you can go and say, hey, guys, we think we need to do this across the whole organization. So learning how to start where you are, how to hack that old model, asking, you know, what is it in our systems and structures that get in the way of us doing our best work? How might we change that? But not believing that you have to go to head of HR or head of IT or something else. Start where you are. Don't ask permission. Don't blow anything up, run a hack, see what you learn, and then go forward. And so I think the way that bureaucracy ultimately gets beaten is not in some kind of Armageddon battle or some huge top-down change process. It gets, it gets beaten when people are willing to give their power away, willing to kind of stop behaving as bureaucrats, but mostly when they're willing to start trying new ways of managing where they are. And we give a, a lot of hints on how to do that. I mean, how to bring your team together for a day, how to build your first hack. I mean, we've, we've been doing this a long time with a lot of organizations. It's not theory to us, but you've got to overcome that belief that, hey, you know what, this this just, our performance management system sucks and there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I, I think of Linus Torvalds who really popularized the idea of, of a hacker, the guy who started Linux. You know, here's Linux today, by far the most ubiquitous software in the world. It's at the core of everything on the web, the core of your Android phone, even inside an Apple iPhone is a kernel of this. And it all starts with some guy who said, hey, let me put up some software, get other people to make it better. Let's hack this together. And I think that's kind of the same approach we need to take when it comes to reinventing uh, management. Well, I'm now really grateful that I asked you this question, Gary, as I believe you just extemporaneously provided our audience with some really useful leadership advice. So thank you. And Gary, we usually do this earlier in each episode, but I'm um, looking at the clock. We have a segment in the podcast that we call the heartbeat round, and I don't want to miss out on having it with you. So what I'd like to do is take a brief break from the wonderful conversation we're having and ask you, I don't know, 15 rapid fire questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. So the goal is just to get to know some of your personal interests and career influences. Are you game? I'll do my best. (laughs) All right. It's all we can expect. The trait you most admire in other people. Curiosity. One book of any genre you wish everyone in the world would read. Mind and Cosmos. The best money you ever spent. On my first pair of skis. If you could witness one event of the past, present, or future, what would it be? The Gettysburg Address. The most humane and effective leader of any era. And that can be business, government, spiritual, you name it. Well, I'm a Christian. I believe that's, I, I believe that's Jesus Christ. A lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. 
that you get out of relationships exactly what you put into them. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Well, <laughs> most of what I think, I guess, would be variations. Tolerance, compassion, patience. But I would say at the moment, maybe more thinking and less shouting. <laughs> a philosopher or author who's had a large amount of influence on your leadership philosophy. Art Kleiner, who wrote The Age of Heretics. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Arrogance. Quote that captures your life philosophy. True leaders seek power with, not power over. Things that you do regularly to maintain your own well-being. Be outside. Piece of wisdom you share with every incoming MBA class. Never believe you're constrained by your role. Undergraduate degree you'd pursue if you were heading to college today. Something in humanities, probably art. Fantastic. Great answers. So thank you for going through that with me. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to go look up those books. That's really wonderful. So thank you. Before I let you go, Gary Hamill, why are you optimistic? I'm optimistic because there's three external realities that are pressurizing the system and making these changes inevitable. The first is that for sure today, companies are up against an unprecedented set of challenges. And that's not only the pandemic, which is the most immediate one, which, by the way, again, is revealing the limits of bureaucracy. We've seen that at the FDA, the CDC, everywhere around the world. As one Italian healthcare leader said, the virus moves faster than our bureaucracy. And I wanted to say, yeah, but so does everything else. But anyway, <laughs> so, so the fact we're up against all these new challenges, climate change, deep social and racial divisions, the potential, as we talked about, the potential job displacing effects of automation, mass economic migration, environmental degradation. And then, of course, there's, there's a lot of opportunities that are coming with 5G and quantum computing and so on. And so I think leaders more and more understand that, you know, in a world where the future is less and less an extrapolation of the past, I need an organization that's fundamentally more resilient. No tweak is going to get me there. So that, I think, is a new thing. So that makes me optimistic. The second thing that makes me optimistic, as I mentioned, was that you have a generation now coming to work who grew up in an environment where what matters is your contribution, not your credentials. When you put something up on YouTube, nobody says that you go to film school. They said, like, does it work? And, and it's also an environment in which every idea gets to compete with every other idea, but nothing on the web gets some coefficient of credibility because it just happens to come from a powerful person. The ideas compete there. So I think that generation coming to work is going to change the way our organizations work for sure. And I think the third thing that makes me optimistic is we have new tools. The work we're doing now in organizations, in some very big ones, including Apple, we can now get 70,000 people on a platform together having a conversation about where and how to innovate in their organization. That simply was not possible even 10 years ago. And so these new tools are allowing us to open source strategy, to open source organizational renewal, to crowd solve the problems of bureaucracy. And we can just harness all of that collective wisdom. That just was impossible. And that's the most amazing thing is, and, and many leaders are still struggling to accommodate themselves to this new reality. But over the last few years, the most important relationships in our organizations have moved from being vertical to being horizontal. And so far, mostly we're using these new technologies just to improve white collar efficiency, right? Slack and Microsoft Teams. Great. We can share calendars, documents, set up meetings. That's great. But where this is clearly going is that we're going to use these platforms to collectively address the most challenging problems. I talk about IBM, where they brought 230,000 people together to ask, how do we exploit our capacity for AI? Right? You just could have done that. So the combination of new challenges, new expectations, and new tools makes me super optimistic that, you know, having waited maybe more than a century to make some of these changes, I think now we're on the verge of doing it. And whether or not it happens in any particular organization depends not on the CEO. It depends on the, the folks who are listening to us uh, today who are making a decision, you know, whether I go along or whether I put my boots on and start to change things where I am. Gary Hamill, we started off rather pessimistically, actually, and we've ended, or at least you've left me feeling very optimistic and actually very energized, very excited about what could happen here. And I think as we're seeing the impacts of COVID right now, how fast things can change that we may not have ever estimated could happen as fast. So your book is prescient, and I want to thank you on behalf of my audience for 
a remarkable conversation. You're a rather sharp guy. I'll just put it there. Thank you so very much, Gary. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it too, Mark. And I, I appreciate that you're interested in these questions and also I clearly have a heart for it. Thank you so very much for this. It's been a delight. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Same for me, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want you all to know that we had a technical glitch with our first episode of the new season and some subscribers either didn't receive it or they got it late. So I just wanted to alert you to the fact that my discussion with Wharton Business School Professor Seagal Barsaid was extraordinary and all of our technical problems are now solved. So please be sure to listen in. I'd also like to invite you to connect with me on social media if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, and my brand new website, markccrowley.com, has all of the links. And as an ongoing favor to me, please continue introducing our podcast to your colleagues and friends. When we see our audiences growing, it reinforces that our work here is proving useful, worthwhile, and should therefore continue. That's really what we're using as the arbiter, is whether or not we're growing. And we are, and we hope we continue. And as always, I want to thank all the people who helped me put out this podcast, including my wonderful producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, in addition to the rest of my extremely talented team, Ken Boynton, Kerry Finnessy, Susan DeRoche, and Josh Richards. And until next time, I close things out with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.